Hello, and welcome to episode 220 of Constructing Comics, a podcast building stories, one page and one panel at a time. On this episode, we have an interview with Doran Corcoran, creator of The Forsaken Future, now on Kickstarter. This is Matt. Doran, thanks so much for joining on this podcast. Can you start us off with a quick bio about yourself? Yeah, thanks a lot for uh, having me here. Uh, obviously, my name is Doran Corcoran. Uh, I've been comic uh, creating comics in the background of my life since I was a teenager, so uh, I've been probably have a filing cabinet full of about, you know, 72 different characters and a pile of different uh, storylines. And I'm finally bringing those to light now. Awesome. So um, before we go uh, into the interview, we'll probably touch on some of that, that lifelong fandom and, and you know, the, the long creative career that you have there. But how about if you can give us an elevator pitch for the, the Forsaken Future, the book that's on Kickstarter right now? Yeah, it's a post-apocalyptic sci-fi series uh, where mutations have started to happen in the world. Uh, it, it revolves around the city called New Washington. It's a mining city. And this issue in particular is focusing on a character called Razorwing. He's the first surviving mutant uh, as people are randomly starting to mutate. Uh, and it follows him through his first kind of day on the job uh, doing a kind of flyby over the city to... Uh, an unknown mission. He doesn't know what's going on, but he's been called to action by a company called Lizer Enterprises that is kind of controlling the mutations, uh, but they haven't told him what's going on. He just knows it's been quarantined, that area of the city. Now a C-zone is this kind of uh, poor part of the town. So there's a discrepancy between corporations and the average person who survived the apocalypse. Uh, and so the C-zones are not the nicest place, shall we say, to hang out. Okay, so this is the uh, the third issue in in the series, correct? Um, that is correct. Yep. So for anybody coming into the Kickstarter that that wasn't able to get issues one and two, there are there sort of catch up tiers for for folks to to come on board. There absolutely is. Both issues are available in PDF and in the standard print. Uh, and as well, th this issue is actually written uh, in a fashion that you can just pick it up and go. So it actually add a little more surprise uh, if you actually started at three. Okay. Uh, and you can get a little bit of a history in one and two from there. Nice. So you had mentioned earlier, sort of in your bio, that uh, you know you have a uh, sort of a lifelong sort of you know passion for creating. You, I think you mentioned you had a file cabinet of was it seventy-two or so characters yeah. or something. Yeah. So are any of these characters or any of these sort of world-building elements that you were describing are, are these sort of newer ideas or are these sort of ideas that you developed and sort of been holding on to for a while? Because it seems like the world is very flushed out. Yeah, the world is definitely very flushed out. That um, so growing up. Uh, I, I was totally, I didn't realize that I was kind of more of the, the headbanger type if you were to look at me, uh, but I didn't realize how geek I was uh, until I found a group of friends in my teenage years and uh, we started hanging out and we actually started doing what was considered evil at the time, almost in, in playing Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> and things like that. Uh, it's funny to think how times have changed uh, since that era. Uh, but what happened is, is we went to a, uh, I think it was called NovaCon in Nova Scotia, Canada. And that was my first experience. We found a game called Cyberpunk, uh, which now everybody knows as Cyberpunk 77, pretty much uh, the video game that's out there now. But this was the role-playing game of, edition of it before video game systems were, were that advanced. And that, and that really sucked me and my friends in. And we started playing. So it was really based on that Cyberpunk world that, that mm -hmm. a lot of people know these days. And then my own twists on top of it and loving your typical comic books. Like, you know what I mean? I always thought it'd be cool to find out 
what happens when mutation and cybernetics kind of collide and try to create a world where that, that that's kind of existing. So that, this was like a, like a tabletop game, very similar to, to a D and D and were you very, handling any like responsibilities that would have been like the, oh, yeah. the, the dungeon master? Oh yeah. Yeah. I think it was called the, the game, uh, the game, not game coach. Uh, but they had a term for it, like Dungeon Master. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I, I did all of that stuff. Even in the Dungeons and Dragons stuff, I wrote, I would be writing uh, my own modules and stuff and my own kind of quests and things like that. So I always had a very creative kind of energy to, to things like that and making kind of stories for people to follow. So, so is it easy to say that that's sort of the, uh, one of the sparks of inspiration for you to, you know, create stories, create worlds and, and environments and stuff like that? I, I can, and there's also another factor to it, and that's I come from a very creative family, uh, and, and a total different aspect to comics. Um, you know, my mother was always creating quilts. Uh, I remember when the, this is kind of a totally off topic, but I mean, uh, but you know, I guess Care Bears were a cartoon, um, but you know, back in the day, Care Bears came out, for instance, as this animation series, uh, and uh, probably a lot of people will know it. But my mother actually created her own pattern for it, and people were coming to the front door of our house trying to get Care Bears. <laughs> you know what I mean, it's kind of funny, but you know, my mother had that. Creative element. My grandparents had that. Uh, I remember people came from uh, came from Ontario at one point. We're in Nova Scotia. That's like 1600. So they had somehow heard that my grandparents made something called Apple dolls, which you won't even hear of these days. But my grandfather would forge the furniture in the basement. My grandmother would make all the clothing and, and kind of shrink these apples down and put little faces on them. They, you know, it, it, it's just a very creative family on top of it. Nice. And what about sort of your your artistic sort of career? Did you do you have any formal training there? Are you self taught? Like how? Yeah. No, absolutely self taught. I, I I was drawing since I was probably six. Uh, and my mother had me. I remember in grade two winning a second place in the the project fairs for uh, uh, something I had done. And it, my mother had made me kind of trace over. I was probably six or seven, but I was traced over all this art. And I kind of fell in love with it then. And then I just started designing my own kind of, I used to draw little tank battles and all this different stuff. So yeah, kind of evolved from there. Definitely self-taught. Uh, mm-hmm. And I've learned a lot over the years about how to be, get better at it. And I'm still on a huge journey trying to figure out. I did do one of the covers for the Forsaken Future uh, Kickstarter. Uh, there's a Savage Edition, which I did for the fans. Kind of want to get my own art into it. Okay. Uh, so there's a Savage Edition there, which was kind of my take on the cyberpunk world at a more kind of violent fashion, shall we say. And what is your what is your art process? Are you uh, like a traditional artist, a digital artist, or maybe a combination of the of the two? Yeah, so I've done both. Um, I so I started obviously with pencil for years, and then I was fortunate enough actually on the creative side, I got into a company called Corel. Um, people will know probably mostly for WordPerfect, uh, but there's something called Corel Draw, which is a competitor, and Corel Photopaint, which for a lot of years were competitors to Adobe products and still are. Um, so I got into Corel and I quickly got put onto their painter products as well. Uh, and in working on Corel Draw, uh, where I learned vector art and, and a variety of different art styles, and they had Wacom tablets. Um, so it was a natural transition for me to be testing those and to learn digital workflows. And I kind of, right now, I, I went, tried to go pure digital for a while, but I'm finding my job is I work a lot at a computer screen, like mm-hmm. probably. 90% of my time is at a computer. So to get that break and to break out a pencil and sit with a piece of paper, it's, it's, it's nice to be able to do that. Um, so I find I'm hybrid right now. Like for instance, some of the art I'm doing for the Forsaken Future, uh, some of the ads in it, um, I'm, I sketched everything out 
and then I scan it in and then I'm kind of digitally finishing them off and inking them. So it's kind of not your typical process, but it's, it's, it's works for me. Nice. So uh, we talked a little bit in the uh, sort of the, the pre-show interview that we had and, and you're, you're handling the, the writing chores on this. So as somebody who has a hand in sort of the writing in the, in the art side, because I think you said maybe you're doing the thumbnails and a little, some of the roughs, is that correct? Yep. I always do. I always do that. I always tell the artist as well that I'm dealing with uh, to, to help me along the way um, th that the thumbnails are just there as a guide. It's the way my brain goes through the process and then I write to it. Uh, but okay. my brain is always thinking of it out. Uh, so I always tell them that they can always uh, change them, of course, and do do their thing. But this kind of gives them more of a visible thing of what's going on as well. And it's helped me grow. I'm becoming so much faster as an artist being able to do those thumbnails and uh, and do that type of stuff. So or is there's no sort of full script is it sort of like are you, you sort of have like plot points and then you sit down to to a piece of paper or if the case presents itself in front of a tablet and you sort of think about like what you want to accomplish on that page and you sort of thumbnail it out like that it's it's a little more complex than that I, i've read quite a few books over the years uh, i believe it was a dc one that explained how to put series together I have an Excel sheet full of all the little sections. And if you were to see all these cells, I'm constantly moving them around because the one thing you learn very quickly is you only have so many pages to work with. You only have so much budget in a comic and you got to kind of keep moving things and dancing them around uh, to fit it in. For instance, there's lots of little side stories you want to kind of squeeze in what's going on with this character now, right? You may not be able to fit that in in your 24 pages once I start thumbnailing it out and you'll make the decision, am I going to squeeze it in or am I going to move it on? So I have this kind of very complex spreadsheet where things dance around, and but everything seems to flow very well off of that. So I took a glance at your your webpage and I scrolled through and there's a lot of other properties on there. What was yes. what was the first property that you sort of uh, realized as a as a fully fledged you know comic book that you could put in other people's hands? So the first my first venture was actually uh, White Fire Guardian of Light. Uh, so it was an afterlife story that I started. Um, but what happened was, is Comic-Con started to come to Ottawa here in Canada. So they started to become more popular. And I had a buddy who we, we wanted to do something for that. So what I did is I tried to, I needed to figure out what would stick, right? And I, I need to throw some things, as, as we say, kind of in the software, we got to throw them at the wall and see what happens. So I created, um, I, I was already working on White Fire Guardian of the Light. I hired a guy called George uh, A. Costanza who did uh, Gabriel Hand of God, amazing. Uh, but those two series go together as the world of white fire. Mm -hmm. And then I got the Forsaken Future. I hired someone to do that. And then I got another artist in the States, Rodney Bennett, um, to actually do a short story as well uh, of Quint, uh, a character I call Quint, who is, uh, it, it goes into the world of white fire as well. And kind of he's, he's being stalked by a demon, a, a type of demon I created called a Raquel. Um, so there's a variety of different stuff there and I keep coming up with more stuff. That's the problem with, with a brain like this. I keep thinking of more things. Like I just added the butcher last year, the butchery, uh, which is kind of hopefully going to become a steampunk kind of dark future type series as well. But we'll see if, how long it takes me to get to that type of stuff. Does, does every uh, property or project fit into a collective uh, universe that you have going on? No, no. Okay. So the world of white fire is separate. Um, the Forsaken Future is really on its own as a sci-fi world, but there's lots of potentials where it could go with other stuff too. It's, it's pretty 
in in its foundation, it's very cyberpunk, but it goes very far from that as well. Um, but the other stuff, like the butchery, is its own thing. And then I have another one actually called Crucifix Unholy Lands, which is kind of getting a little bit into that horror side of things. Uh, and I have one other, actually one other project that will be coming up in October, which is related to the world of Whitefire, um, which is uh, Raquel Quint's Curse. That one's actually almost complete right now. Uh, I'm just getting to the lettering stages. The artist is actually four pages away and I'm hoping to do a Halloween release of that. So there's things all over the place. Most of the focus probably you could say is on World of Whitefire, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm pushing the Forsaken Future right now as kind of the, to see if it sticks to the wall and, and if I can find the interest. Nice. So for the projects that are sort of in the collective universe of, of Whitefire, um, you know, I know that you had mentioned that you sort of have this Excel sheet. Um, do you have like this massive sort of document where you're sort of branching out, keeping things sort of uh, together in, in, in that universe? Oh, yeah. And in that universe is huge to me. A lot of people think it's, a, it's uh, because it's called Gabriel Hand of God. A lot of people instantly like I remember going to the cons and people coming up. Are you, are you religious? And the actual, the actual opposite it, that's not true. I grew up around a lot of religion. I had lots of friends who were religious. Um, but the whole purpose of this world is actually there's heaven and hell, as we've all heard about for so many years. And then there's purgatory in the middle. And what's happening in purgatory is what that series is all about. Uh, and, and this kind of fight for the souls in purgatory, because they can flip the balance between good and evil type thing. But these people are not the people who got into heaven or hell. So there's not this kind of um, kind of angel, kind of demon thing. They're just, they're just stuck, right? And they have to make their choices as things go. So, um, you know, you're, you're working on a lot of different things here, but, you know, you're, you're, in the, you're in the forsaken future sort of mindset right here. You, you're, you're on a Kickstarter. Um, would it be safe to say that, like, X-Men would have been uh, an influence on, on this uh, a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I definitely would say that X-Men Alpha, particularly not maybe the most well-known storyline of everyone, uh, but it's more of a sci-fi storyline, you know, Wolverine's running around with one of his, one of his hands off type thing. Uh, I, I really liked that series back in the day. And I thought it was so different to see the, a different take on the heroes. Uh, you almost could compare it almost to a multiverse situation that Marvel's working on right now. I don't think it'll ever see the light of day. Uh, in the sense of the Marvel world, but you never know uh, with the way they go, they go with things. Uh, so, you know, it, I, I find for a lot of indie creators, sort of the, the sci-fi or the horror um, way is that, you know, where, where a lot of people work, um, it's difficult to sort of be an indie creator and to do superhero comics. So was some of your thought to um, put it in this sort of cyberpunk world to also sort of appeal to like sci-fi fans as, as well yep uh and it just was something I, I always uh loved as as well right uh i'm not so i tried to stay away as much as possible for instance razor wing uh is a name that you would typically associate with a superhero right it's something that you would say hey this is a character who's but the reason he's got a superhero type name uh is because he's become this kind of i wouldn't well, mascot might be a harsh word for it, but he's become the first mutant for this mutation company. So he has this popularity to him. So he's kind of being marketed, shall we say, to, to the world at that point as this first kind of surviving mutant. Um, so that's why he kind of has this identity that's kind of crossed over. I do have other characters in that world, like for instance, like a John Liger. 
Um, but I didn't just call him Liger, right? You know what I mean? To refer to cats or to the, the you know, a combination between a lion and a tiger. I did that to try and avoid the stereotyping of, of let's create a bunch of characters with, with these names or, or, or these kind of AKAs, shall we say. Nice. Uh, so when you were describing sort of the, the razor wing character, um, I don't know if it was in the, the pre-show interview or maybe a little bit of your bio, but uh, you had mentioned RoboCop. So is sort of that, because I remember in the RoboCop movie, there was like the, the evil corporation that was sort of, yep. you know, pulling the strings and they, they had, you know, didn't they have sort of like faux commercials that would come on during the movie to sort of describe like the new product they had? So was that an influence of this, this storyline? Yeah, absolutely. Again, um, so you know, they had their sunscreen 3000. They had, uh, there was like a car where you got kind of electrocuted if you tried to rob, you got tasered, you know, when you went in to try and hijack it. Uh, that type of mentality I wanted to include in this series. Uh, I wanted to do something of myself in there in each issue too. Uh, I was doing technical art and my basic art. Um, so what I did to try and break it up and kind of bring you into the ser- like into the world a bit more, because it's very hard to do it when you have limited pages and that. I started putting ads kind of like even the old, remember when you'd pick up the comic and it would have like x-ray glasses in it. Mm-hmm. You'd be like, ooh, x-ray glasses, what are they doing? They show a picture of some, you know, <laughs> some girl down the street and you're like looking through the skirt or something silly like that. But I wanted to put in something that helps to the world, uh, helps build up the world and also kind of mimics that mentality of the, the commercials uh, from, from Robocop and the ads from the, the original kind of comics back in the day. So you mentioned that you have your hands in a lot of sort of the different aspects of this book. Um, but what is the, the portion that you're handing most over to, 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 to your artist? Is it, uh, is it sort of like the, the penciling and, and stuff like that? The, the pencil and inks uh, okay. Armando has done, and he's done an amazing job on it. Uh, and, you know, the thumbnails, but I also have gone in and I've actually had to modify. So I lost, con- what happened was, is I lost contract, uh, contact with Armando at one point. And so I was in a stuck, kind of in a stuck spot for a while. Like, how am I going to finish this, right? So there was a lot of edits to be done. There was a lot of changes I wanted to make. Um, so I went in and I actually did it myself and turned it into kind of this, I kind of turned myself sort of into the co- co-artist to a degree of it. And that's why I mentioned my name because I do the ads as an artist because I do the ads as art. And I've also done a large degree of, of changes or, or art for the, uh, the series as well. Nice. And with the with the thumbnailing it and then turning it over um was there sort of a a process of of working together where maybe on the first couple of pages um you know maybe you had to have more discussion um or there was you know suggestions and then did did you find a a workflow after a couple of pages uh, uh sort of building that teamwork up Yeah. And I think that's very important for a lot of projects out there is to get some degree of collaboration on it. Um, We went back and forth on a lot of stuff. It's very hard because I have a vision in my head. Right. Mm -hmm. And I know as an artist as well, it's hard for myself to get that vision out sometimes, let alone someone else. Right. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, going back and forth and discussions on things. And then you see what the artist does and you go, well, what if you did it this way? And what if we change this? And you know what I mean? But that, I understand that could be a frustrating process too for artists. Uh, you know, so we definitely go back and forth. It's definitely part of the creative process. Uh, mm-hmm. And you hope that in the end you create something that's really, that's really cool. Uh, it's a combination of your work. Yeah. I think what things that that's interesting with this sort of process that you have is that you do thumbnails. So like I write, 
and you know I'll turn it over to an artist and it's sort of these two sort of happy accidents where it's either they produce almost something that is exactly like what I had in my mind's eye or they produce something that's uh, different but I, I see that it's 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 better so I, I know that you have this this thumbnail sort of in between so there's a little bit of communication that way uh, but what was it like for you the first time you know you sort of turned those those thumbnails over and then the sort of like a finished page came back to you to see this sort of sort of take more of a life of its own yeah and, and you have to pick uh, so sometimes, as you say, it goes in a different direction than you want. You have to decide, kind of rewrite things to work with that sometimes, or you have to, or you have to get the, you know, get the changes done. Um, but it, it, it's definitely a, a process that you, that is, I think is very helpful. My, my mm -hmm. friend, um, Corey Hardyman, he does Sister Mercy. He's actually on Kickstarter right now as well with his issue three. Um, and he actually isn't an artist. And he now does the thumbnails. Like he caught up on that right away and he wanted to do his own kind of uh, thumbnails as well to help his, his, his artist who's amazing. Um, so I, I think it's a good process, but it doesn't mean it's for, it's definitely not for everybody. Like, we, like you, you can look back to the way, like I think it was Stan Lee said the way he does comics. Like you can look at his style and it's very couple paragraphs and he just hands it off and let the artist go, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think where you're learning to work with people, it takes time. Uh, and then there's, the fact in my case where I'm working with a lot of people overseas um, as the world opened up, I could only start to afford people who were, who were like in the Philippines or in other, in other countries um, most of the time uh, just because they're, they're cheaper to work with. Uh, so, it, you know, I, I don't have a huge budget laying around in the background for things. So you have to be uh, save money where you can. And there's a communication problem, but as they always say, you know, a picture is worth of what is it, a thousand or a million words. Mm -hmm. um, so giving them a thumb can, kind of go through that kind of translation barrier sometimes because they, if they're confused by what I type, not to say I'm the best person in writing and typing it out sometimes, they can at least visible, visibly look at that thumbnail and go, I think I know what he's getting out of that, right? Yeah, so I've worked with folks from anywhere from Brazil to Turkey or, or Argentina, and I've found that like, um, I have to be very I have to make sure that I'm, I'm being as clear as possible and I'm not sort of using like North American slang or sort of like a term that was sort of like a native English speaker would, would understand. Did you ever ever any of those sort of communication problems? Not, uh, no, uh, but I don't know if that has to do with the process mm -hmm. or if that just happens. I just got, I've gotten lucky a lot of the times or when something does go kind of the other direction, you're able to reel it back in. Um, uh, for instance, I, I was working with a guy from Spain now for uh, Raquel, uh, Quint's Curse, and uh, there's a couple times where he totally went in a different direction. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I had the, the, the demon kind of getting mad, and uh, he, for some reason, thought the tombstone, I wanted to have it rip in half, and I'm like, it make no sense at all, so he drew it that way. I'm like, why is this, he picking up this tombstone and ripping it in half because oh that's what you wrote and i think I was, oh it's it's a translation thing and he's not following exactly where i've taken him right okay um because this raquel had kind of fallen over some fallen over the tombstone and was just ticked at it right that he had fallen over it so it wasn't supposed to be him ripping it in half or anything but he's supposed to rip it up out of the ground anyways um so the, it's very the words as you say it's very easy to to get them mixed up and without thumbnails i think it could be a lot harder do you do anything in addition to thumbnails? Like if, if you have sort of a, 
uh, a movie or like a, an image that you really feel like you can pull off of Google that sort of conveys like the, the mood or, or sort of the look that you're going for? Do you ever sort of send sort oh, of like a reference photo? Yeah. <laughs> All over the place. Um, for instance, for the Forsaken Future, I was a huge fan of Elysium. I think it's called Elysium. I don't know if I'm saying the word correct. I haven't watched the movie in a while, but the way their cybernetics looked, I loved that it was a darker, non-shiny kind of cybernetics. So in these sea zones in the Forsaken Future, it's a darker spot. It's not, you know, rich people. So their cybernetics are very kind of crappy, shall we say, or mm -hmm. half done. So I didn't want them to have this shiny look, which uh, some of the colors at some point did, but I'm like, no, please don't, right? Um, and it just creates a better mood, right? So I, I put in pictures from uh, Elysium and uh, all the time uh, for, for Raquel Quint's curse, I kind of liked the caretaker from the ghost first Ghost Rider movie. I forget his name now, the guy with the big mustache. He's been in a lot of Westerns. Oh, um, uh, I know who you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, you, you, once you see him, you know, because his mustache is like legendary. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'll have to figure it out later. Uh, but uh, I really liked his look uh, to a degree. So we got a degree of him kind of in there and that kind of caretaker type mentality fitted well to the story. That's cool. So yeah, it's that it, it would seem with sort of thumbnails, uh, reference photos, or sort of themes, or sort of moods that you're going for, you have a lot of ways to sort of convey what you're, what you're hoping to, to get. You know, you know, I work as a writer, I dabble in art a little bit, but recently I've gone to um, providing more, more reference. Um, I was working with a guy in Argentina, and we wanted a, we wanted a street scene in England from the 70s, and he's like, I have no idea what that, you know, what that would look like. So I just sort of Googled a few images and I'm like, let's just try to get it like this. So like, yeah, that's, that's something that I've sort of added as well recently. Isn't that amazing? If you really stop and think about it for someone of my generation, um, that you can do that. Yeah. <laughs> you can go to the internet, as you say, go to Google, do a copy and paste, and, like find what you, you're looking for, right? I remember having to go to the library as a teenager. Uh, and you know, you had, you'd be lucky if the book was there that you were looking for, right? You'd be sitting there looking for all these index cards and the world is so accessible now. And to find references like that is just, just so easy to do. Why wouldn't yeah. you do it in the end, right? Yeah, I think uh, I've, I've heard a couple of things. Uh, or uh, Actually, I saw one late, I saw one on, on Instagram where uh, an artist had showed sort of their their file drawer their file drawer with sort of labeled like you know old westerns uh, you know cars from the twenties and I, I think like uh, there was an interview with Jim Lee maybe on the Kevin Smith podcast where you know he would sort sort of like if he was going through a magazine and he saw something that he thought might be helpful you know later uh, in the future he would just sort of rip that page out and sort of collect all of that because you know. Uh, they, they didn't have the sort of built up imagery all over the internet that we have now. So the, so that works out pretty well. Yep. Yeah. The world is, is at our fingertips literally every day now uh, and being able to see it in a lot of references in different ways. Yeah. And even the stuff we saw that will be references from when we were like, when I was a kid, I can go on there if it's something like Robotech or something that's, that, that was interesting to me as a kid that I thought was cool and reference that now, because that's like, even all our old stuff is, is there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know, working with a team um, that's located in different parts of the world, uh, do you sort of have a workflow where you might trade some notes? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's evening for you, you sort of go to bed, 
um, and then sort of wake up to uh, a page that's been finished after you've traded notes to sort of when you have that time zone difference? I find we, we work in packs of pages. Um, okay. So what I typically do is I provide PDFs with everything we discussed about thumbnails and, and as you say, references of the different things that, that anything that counts. Uh, and I usually work in packs of five to 10, but I like to be, when I start a project typically, uh, I would like to be 10 pages ahead at minimum so that I'm not kind of wasting the artist's time, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I want to give them as much as possible and get his feedback as quick as possible on some of it. And I find a lot of the times it's the thumbnails that are coming back and then the opinion comes in. So the thumbnails from them. So I gave them thumbnails, they're giving me thumbnails back. I'm saying, hey, no, this should be like this. Uh, it's trying to iron out the differences. Uh, and then it kind of goes from there. Um, so that that's pretty much the workflow that I find it, it gets to. I think doing it page by page might be harder for the artist but I'm not like, it did, I just, I like to give people freedoms. A lot of the times I'll tell them when I'm working with colorists or, or artists, I know I can't pay you top dollar, right? But what I can do is let you fit into my, fit into your schedule, right? Mm -hmm. So here's what I got, just get it to me over time. I'm not going to try and make you do it in a week, in two weeks, a month. Uh, a lot of the times I'm building these things. For instance, the Forsaken Future 3 has, has been going on for years, um, literally. Uh, I, I was taking the time and trying to deal with the people and give people flexibility, right, mm -hmm. um, to get things done. So um, I think you had mentioned this. Um, do you, have you hired a, a colorist or is that one of the things yeah. that you delve into oh i do i do i definitely i definitely color as well um but i'm still too way slow of an artist and too ways too slow as a colorist working on that stuff taking my own courses but what's really cool right now is um so we had a uh, we had a colorist uh, but he's had some health problems and i had listed as a concern um in in the bottom of the uh, kickstarter but what has happened is is we've i've had to move on because uh, the timelines are getting short if it if it does get funded, if we pull this off um, and I didn't want to be sitting. So I actually was lucky enough to get David Ocampo um, to actually do the colors for me. And I've just posted today the first time uh, his, his colors on the Kickstarter. And now David is like, he worked for, you know, heavy metal magazine, MWB comics, Marvel, Xenoscope, top cow in image comics. That's like some of the things listed on his, his page. So I'm really happy to be working with, and he is like a pro, like he's, he's already going like crazy. Like it's, it's amazing. Nice. Um, I'm sure that like the, you know, the, the, ta you know, bringing that, uh, you know, was it David? I'm sorry. That was yeah, David. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So did, it was probably pretty easy with all of the digital files and stuff like that, but were you able to say, you know, this person is uniform as this color and just sort of keep going from the, the, the other stuff to make sure you maintain the continuity. That is a great point. Um, so I don't even mention this half the time, but I do all the character design. So I'm usually sketching and drawing and putting color schemes together of the characters before the artists even get it. Um, so I already have the character design in place. Um, but in this case, there was already some pages to work off that he had that I'd already kind of flushed out with the, the former colors. So I was able to provide that to him. And he really, I think he really loved the fact that all the pages were just sitting there on a cloud, which is just amazing technologies if you think about it. And I just had to share it with him and he had all the pages. He didn't have to worry about the grief of the artist. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Not hitting a deadline and then he's delayed or anything. It's just, he can just go to town, right? Yeah. So, um... You are doing the lettering of this book, though. That's sort of the, the 
you know, when often we think of comic book production, that's sort of the last line before it goes to, to, to print. Um, are you using that lettering as a, as a final editing pass when, when you're there? Because, you know, th at this point, um, you know, you live with this story, you thumbnailed it, but now you're seeing it sort of like completely sort of, you know, the, all the production art other than the lettering being done. Do you use that to sort of go, maybe I can change this bit of dialogue around, or I have, I'm saying a little bit too much because, you know, the picture, the, the story is conveying that, like, is, do you use that as, a, as one last sort of tweak there? Yeah, I, and I think you have to. And a lot of the times I'll throw, I'll actually hire an editor. Uh, I've, I've worked with a couple in the past, I've, a freelance editor, just, just to go over it. Um, cause I, I, sometimes my grammar's not the best. Um, and again, you, when you're, you don't see, you know, the forest for the trees sometimes, uh, and it's when you're trying to do everything, right. Mm -hmm. Um, but changing the story, the artist, I find, for instance, the forsaken future is a great example of that. Um, so in some cases, uh, Armando put in some great kind of, he's really great with expressions. And it, there's actually a couple scenes in there that are, to me, a little bit Deadpoolish. So I actually changed some of the writing to be a little more quirky because he's supposed to be a young kind of cocky guy. So I made it a little more quirky at a couple spots I, just to make it a little bit different. And it just fit to what he drew because I wasn't going to ask him to redraw because it was I, I kind of embraced it instead of kind of said, no, this is too over the top. Nice. Yeah, I think the, the point you made about uh, hiring an editor um, to, to take a look at it is, is very, uh, very wise of you. I think, you know, a lot of times for me, I've experienced that, like, I've lived with these stories in my head for so long. And when I sit down, I might, I might read it as like, in my head, I know what that person is saying, but actually, like, it's not actually what's what's on that page, or it's yes. what's in that balloon, because I'm like, I know this so much that like, I'm I, not to say that I'm glancing at it, but I'm, you know, I'm like, oh, I know this. You're, I'm mov it. you're yeah. moving through it so fast that you, you, you don't slow down. So that's, that's very beneficial. Yeah. And um, I think I learned that the hard way in the sense. So when I created, I mentioned about creating the, the stuff we did years ago, I didn't have an editor look at it. And I found I had multiple people look at it. I thought that would be good enough. Right. But then I started to find all these grammar errors. And, and once I did that, I was like, it was, it was okay because it wasn't a print yet in that. Like I, I created the website and I put it online, created my own viewer for all that stuff, but I could fix it all. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. On the fly is what I learned, but I felt like I was wasting a lot of my time redoing all this stuff when I, like, it's not expensive most of the time, honestly, for you to find an editor. Uh, it's not going to break the bank. Uh, and it's a, just an insurance that, you know, your grammar is going to probably be correct. <laughs> Odds are if they're good at what they do. Uh, and maybe the context can be followed. It's, it's always good to have that extra set of eyes uh, that are trained for that type of stuff. Sure. And are you looking for an editor to just sort of do that, uh, you know, that grammar pass? Or are you looking for somebody that like goes in and goes, all right, um, you need to be careful that this is not a dangling plot point that you don't address? Um, so did they go into that level of sort of story development? I wish I had that, but no, it is mostly for the editing of, of the text, the grammar and the kind of the flow of things mm -hmm. uh, to make sure it goes through. I expect that they would, because they're kind of like the, let's say the third or fourth, per, fourth person who's looked at it, that I've already kind of shaken out a lot, anything that doesn't make sense. Okay. Um, and I, you know, I remember when I worked on Sister Mercy number one for my friend, Corey, it, I, I remember giving the feedback. I don't think you're using thought bubbles. 
Like, I want to, in me in comics, I want to know it. So, you know what I mean? You can, if you can get that type of feedback early and you can start thinking about that type of stuff, because we don't always think in the way a comic should be written. Uh, and if you can find a crew of people that you can just bounce it off and then throw it at an editor, that seems to have uh, worked for me pretty good so far. Nice. So is the Forsaken Future the, the book that you have the, the, the most issues of in sort of your creative uh, catalog? Yeah, and I'm trying to, what I want to do is get it to 100 pages. Uh, I want to get to, to four or five issues. And no matter what, it will get there. Um, and and that's, that's my personal goal with it. And it is, it is pretty much the, well, I guess you could argue, if you look at the sh little short stories I've done for the World of Whitefire, there's about the same amount in the end. Um, but the total focus is the forsaken future right now, uh, for the, probably for the next two or three months. And then it'll be back over to, as I said, I, I want to do a Halloween release of uh, Raquel uh, Quint's Curse, uh, just because it'll be cool to try and see if I can get some Kickstarter stuff out of that. Cool. So um, 100 pages of Forsaken Future, uh, uh, four to five issues. But, you know, talking to you earlier, it seems like this could go on uh, more than, than four to five. So is it sort oh, yeah. of like, is it sort of like that, that Marvel or DC um, model where it's like five issues sort of tell like a like an arc um, that maybe you could collect and then like if you come in with six you're still continuing this, the overall story but you're doing a different sort of you know plot line there kind of yes and no okay um i don't like to limit myself to kind of what they're doing or anything like my uh, like some other people I've talked to always will, friends and that will always talk about doing turning it into a graphic novel because that's the next way let's say to make money off something I'm not really trying to think in that mentality though if I could work it in I will mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I probably could with what's coming up but I this to me this is a series this is a series that could go a long time and it, it ends uh, the, the series definitely ends but I can't tell you my spreadsheet the way I keep dancing everything around those little cells around I'm not sure if it will be in 10 issues uh, or if it will be even possibly longer to get to the, to the end of it. It might, it might be possible in 10, uh, but I don't like to push it in that sense. I just want it to work out and me to be happy with it. It's, it's a create, just like I said, I'm from a creative family. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a love of what I'm doing, right? So I'm not trying to over push it. Um, for instance, uh, I added four pages to this one because I couldn't, you know, most comics these days are 24 pages. Well, I, I said, oh, you know what, I'm going to make it 28 pages just because I want to fit it in there, right? You know, a lot of people, if they were thinking about the dollar bills of everything, they would be going, no, no, we're cutting this off at 24. We can't overinvest it. You're only going to make so much money profit on this. You know what I mean? There's a whole kind of business side to it that, that you need to have, but I don't want it to be the guiding factor. Sure. So you have the the overall ending point for oh. the, the series. So when you're moving the cells around, is that 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 always stays at the at the at the end exactly and yeah. i think it actually was stanley who said that whenever you build it he said it, particularly the comics build it from the back forward because then you can uh, then you can fit everything in like you have always have your final goal in mind and you can kind of if you do back forward you, you're going to get there where you need to go and, and with that in mind you'll make the other dominoes kind of fall into place I think it's a good mentality. Um, and I, I, I can't tell you till I finish it, whether it works out, but I'm, I'm trying to follow it. Yeah. It's, it's gotta be good to sort of 
know where eventually you want to, to end it because you can sort of maybe take a like a like a side journey but you'll always sort of get back on on the path but you, and you're always always moving towards that you know sometimes you might be moving quicker to quicker towards that point and sometimes you might be able to slow the pace down a little bit but it's good that you know where you eventually um where you're where you're gonna where you're gonna end up and my mentality with it was if I have something that needs to be longer in the middle of that, let's say I, I find that people are interested in characters or stuff like that, and they might want to know more about something. If I see that sign, I can always break out into, you know, like I've done in the past with a 10 page story on them or something, and maybe put them, put it four pages. Like I've seen comics, I believe do this in the past where they, they put like a, you know, a short little sequence of what's going on with another character at the back type thing. There's mm -hmm. always that mentality in mind that you can always break out more to get to where you want to go, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to be the key focus of it. Like that story can't be a key element, right? Cause then you won't get written into your main story and people, it won't make sense there. But if there's a part of it that people will think cool, like for instance, uh, you know, I've got Corey Lizer in there and he's another character with a name that again, there's reasons why some of these have names. I call him fast draw, right? Uh, but there's reasons he has that. He's, he's in the gangs in the common zone, but he's also a rich, rich kid from Lizer Enterprise. He just chose not to do the corporate life. Uh, and he just couldn't stand it. And he liked the common zone better than hanging out with the corporate slime. You know what I mean? Um, but I could see him and his gang affiliations and his gang problems and him being a kind of this rich kid kind of out there, people not liking him. I could see that almost being a side story uh, that I could get to or kind of mix into things. Right. So you know, you, you described the sort of process and, you know, you, you talked about sort of the, the Stan Lee quote of, uh, you know, knowing where you're going and building backwards. Um, at what point did you sort of have the, the eureka moment where you knew like how you were going to end it? Because, you know, I know for me, a lot of times it's sort of like, uh, you know, like cool premise or, a, a, you know, uh, you know, I often talk about like the the David Lynch movie uh, Blue Velvet, where he talks about he he had the the thought of a, an ear just like in the grass, and like that was sort of the kernel of the idea. And then he he built everything. Uh, but at what point did you sort of know your 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 end point? It actually changed, believe it or not. But that's because I've been doing this for so long, and this storyline uh, was created originally the starts of it when I was when I was a young man and it, it lots of gray hair since um, but at that point I had an ending for it but what I realized is I could make it into a lot more mm -hmm. than what that was so I, I had I had kind of my eureka moment and decided you know what I can make this story more interesting to this post-apocalyptic kind of sci-fi future if I do this and I don't think a lot of people will see where it's going right now like a lot of people might and I think that's kind of cool because right now it probably won't be till issue five or six where you're, well, four or five, four or five, you're going to definitely see there's, there's something else going on. Um, but I think that's cool. The, I, are they called red herrings when you write um, mm -hmm. a little bit? So I think in actually in Game of Thrones, uh, there's a lot of red herrings uh, in the sense there are things that you make people think of that are actually going nowhere to get their interest. Uh, I think one of the red herrings in Game of Thrones was about the wolves, one of the wolf names, and what they, they led people to think that one of the dire wolves that they had, I don't know if they were called dire wolves, I can't remember right now, but the, it, it, it led to the fact that you're going to see more of it, and you don't. Yeah. <laughs> you don't, yeah. it's just, just gone. Yeah. Um, so, 
Not, do you think that sort of the change uh, that you had was just sort of your experience with, with sitting down and, and doing storytelling? Like you said, you started this off as, as a younger man and we're all sort of, um, you know, when you start, um, you look at your earlier work and you're like, you know, you're proud of it, but you're like, oh, I, I you know, I've come so far or I've improved like that. So do you think sort of it was just sort of the, the experience you gained over time that you, you were able to sort of change the ending and maybe you, 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 had a, you shared a couple of sort of elements of what you were doing, but you were able to sort of create a, a better story with over time and experience. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, wisdom is kind of, it's kind of learning. Uh, well, I think it was a quote at one point that wisdom is standing on the shoulders of others. Um, so just in looking around and seeing different creative projects over time, as you say, as you gain experience, you start to realize that you can kind of throw more into it. You can make mm -hmm. it something something more if you if you can pull it off. Like, it's not easy uh, thumbing it out and figuring it out and trying to, to uh, you know what I mean? But, but you, it, you can do more with something why wouldn't you add that extra caveat in there, that extra, you know, take it to another level or that little bit of surprise for the reader? Yeah. So, um, you know, with being a storyteller, um, are you able to, to pick up a comic and, and read it for an enjoyment or do you uh, try to, you know, dissect it or do you do like a, like a, a, a read for your own where it's like, all right, I'm gonna enjoy this and then I'm going to pick it back up and then I'm going to try to figure out the bones of what the, what the, you know, the, the writer or the artist was doing here. Yeah. I, I, I'm kind of in the latter. I, I haven't been able to read a comic book in a long time and, and enjoy it the way I used to. Um, be, just because when I'm reading them, I, well, I do for the art, but I'm a very visual person and that's why I love this medium, you know, being an artist first, uh, and, and honestly, as a teenager, I was having, I was struggling reading. Um, and so comics were able to be a bridge between my art side and being able to sit down there and actually try and figure out what's going on, right? So I think it's an amazing medium uh, that doesn't get the credit it deserves um, in that type of sense. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it's really, yeah, I don't even know how to say it, uh, but just for that sake, like I can't get into them as much. It's, I visually love it and I can look at someone's art and I can rip it apart. And, you know, I can look at any type of art now and I can see what's wrong with it right away. I have this kind of gift now for being an artist for so many years and kind of judging art and be, doing the hard way I do it. I can literally look at a piece of art and I can go, this is wrong with it probably within 10 seconds where most people don't even see half the things I'm talking about. Um, but I think it does spoil a little bit that type of stuff. Having said all that, I'm the type of guy who's on Netflix. I'll watch B movies with subtitles and, you know, some of the Asian ones with subtitles and enjoy the heck out of it where most people wouldn't do that type of stuff. But I, it's, I think it's because I love visual elements and I, I've always liked action. And I've mm -hmm. really tried to bring that to the first three issues of the series is, is trying to bring a lot of action. Yeah. Do you ever, uh, do you ever ruin a, a movie or a TV show for somebody who might not have the, no. the joy of storytelling? I, I know, I, don't. <laughs> I, know, I know for me, um, and I think I can see a, a, a Mandalorian baby Yoda behind you. Yep. Uh, but when he was, uh, spoiler alert for, but when he was unscrewing the, uh, 
the control knob and he gave uh, the he gave the ball to Gorgo to go. I turned to I, I turned to my family. I'm like, that ball's coming back into the story somehow. And they're like, what? And I'm like, just watch. And so like I've done that on occasion where I've, I've ruined it for the sort of the the, the normies who just want to sit down and, you know, escape and, and, yeah. and watch the show. Yeah, and, and I do see that. And a lot of the times I could tell you the end of a movie before I see it, uh, where it's going to go and the pieces that are going to kind of come together. But I don't, <laughs> I'm on a different level. I don't want to get hit or punched or <laughs> <laughs> stay quiet. I like, I'll go, ah, and I'll do like, a, people look at me like, oh, <laughs> let's go back. <laughs> I'll just keep it to myself. <laughs> nice, nice. You have, you have more control than I do then. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, another question that we ask folks who, who are on the, uh, the, on the show that are, are, are running a Kickstarter, um, what sort of uh, Kickstarter, um, you know, mentality do you have? Are you a, are you a re- refresh every 30 seconds to see the backer count and the goal? Or are you <laughs> able to sort of step away for, for a couple of hours and say, oh, this, this happened while I was away from the computer. Yeah, so it, this is gonna be my own own downfall uh, probably here. Um, so I, I'm an experimenter. I'm probably totally a totally different class, but this is my first Kickstarter. And I, I've really been trying to learn a lot from, as I mentioned a couple of times, my friend Corey and what he did, but I've also been watching it, backing other people and trying to learn what they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I find is I, I will play around. So I don't, I don't need to check it every 30 seconds. Definitely not that person. Um, but I'm trying to keep on top of it and keep pushing. Right. Uh, but what I did that probably was my mistake a couple of times with this one was I stopped pushing to see what would happen. Uh, for instance, I was trying to see if my, I was running, I'm running ads as well. I, I thought, you know, well, my Google ads will start to bring in, uh, some people for a day, my, you know, Facebook ads, my, uh, what was the third one? Twitter. I started doing Twitter ads for the first time. Um, so I, I tried to figure all that stuff out. I'm like, this will this will work, right? It makes sense. I'm putting money to it. I've created, I believe I've created a good project with a lot of talented people from the, you know, who've been in the industry. Uh, and then I realized that I probably wasted probably three or four days of this project where I could have been trying to figure out how to do a podcast, for instance. I never thought of it. Um, so me being the noob to this, my friend told me he says you know well you got to do podcasts and that stuff too to get your your name up. i didn't think of myself as any part of the brand <laughs> i don't know if that makes sense but i kind of thought the comic would work and i've been to the cons i've done cons i i've uh, up here in canada i i've you know i've done every year i went to the ottawa comic con i went down to Hellcon. i was planning to go to east coast before the whole pandemic so i can do cons and i can sit there and talk but i never thought of myself as the brand i always thought i was talking about the comic i don't know why um interesting yeah uh well I, i'll have to make the admission again here i'm gonna I'm a click every 30 seconds to, to see where we are so uh definitely uh having that self-control to not do that is probably helping you out a little bit um i think i'm always set that life is full of uh, life is full of uh, of you know setbacks and there's there's wins and fails and even if i think a lot of people get really stressed out and you know, if, if this fails, it's gonna really, 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 really suck. Um, but I never, I, that in no way is the end of my creative journey anywhere, mm-hmm. right? As I said, I already, I already have Ray Kel, Quint's Curse ready to go in October. It doesn't mean it's the end of the Forsaken future. It's a segment that I need to learn from. And it, you know what I mean? It means I've got to learn from it, figure it out, do round two. And, and again, being in the software world, like the R&D world, that is a constant mentality you have. There's an old saying, um, well, there's not an old saying, it's a saying in the industry, fail fast. 
So learn quickly from your mistakes. And if you're going to fail, fail, and then adjust. Okay. So um, you, you had mentioned that you had gone, you, you had gone to cons and sort of hand sold some of your books. Um, you know, now that we're sort of in the, the summer of, of 2021, is your hope to, to get back on, on the road and, and, you know, as more people get vaccinated and, you know, things open up, are, are you hoping to, to get back on the con scene? Yeah, I, I am. I, I don't know if I'll be, so I know it's not probably considered huge Ottawa Comic Con, Comic Con to a lot of people in the world uh, of Comic Cons. Like it's not, you know, New York or, or San Diego or anything like that. Uh, but it's local, um, which is cool, but I'm trying to get out more. For instance, East Coast Comic Con is in Moncton or New Brunswick every year. I'm actually going to you know, I, I'm going to make the drive out there to do that one. I, it's on my, my bucket. I almost like I have a bucket list of things I want to do with the cons mm-hmm. uh, and East coast is on it. Um, we'll see how it goes. It, it, it can get expensive to do. And again, I don't want to be the guy who's sitting around worrying about the dollars and cents of it. Uh, yeah. I, I want to experience what I can experience of it and just check these places out for my own personal geek sake. It's fun being at a con and seeing all these people go by sometimes all dressed up and, and all the different people uh, who, who will stop by your booth. Uh, I don't remember the name of the actor, but I was with my, my buddy at Halcon and Beverly Crusher from Star Trek Next Generation. Apparently she was sitting there staring at my booth for a long period of time. And uh, I didn't catch on. And my friend Doug's huge Star Trek. He's like poking at me. He's like, that's, that's, that's. And he <laughs> said her actress's name. Like, oh. <laughs> I, was, I didn't catch on. I love the show and I watched it, but but she looked so different over the years. I didn't really catch on. Um, and I'm like, oh, wow, cool. You know, that's kind of a neat experience. On top of, I love meeting people in that sense and just yapping with them about the cons and that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, um, you know, it was great uh, catching up with you um, and, and talking about this book. Um, but as we close up here, um, you know, give us a uh, another another sort of synopsis or elevator pitch uh, for the forsaken future. Um, and are there do you do you have social media links uh, for people to check out as well? Yeah, uh, the main way to get in contact with me is probably, you know, obviously the Kickstarter uh, the Forsaken Future is the main link right now, but whitefirecomics.com will always have links there and it will have my Facebook link there uh, with a big section with, with Facebook on it. My Twitter is just Whitefire Comics. Uh, it's as simple as that. Uh, and uh, that's pretty much it for social media. I have an Instagram, but being an old dog, I'm still trying to figure that thing out. Now, it took me forever. You should have seen me trying to fight to try and anyways, get an image posted up to that. Um, but uh, as for for a pitch, I mean, if I could have anybody do anything to try and see what they think of the series or kind of the world creating that I've done, I would suggest go to the Kickstarter and watch the video I put in there. I created this amazing video that's a prelude to the series so you can see the bigger picture. Uh, And the series itself, I mean, being, I call it a slobber knocker. It's going to be a action packed issue. It's introducing uh, a cool character. I think in the future, uh, in, in this kind of post-apocalyptic world uh, and introducing the sea zones, as I call it. So it's going to be uh, a, a quite quite the issue. And I just really, really hope I need right now for to pull this off at this stage. I'm, I'm at 41% funded and I've got eight pages left to go. So that's not very healthy. So I need everybody, their dog, their cat, their hamster. <laughs> I need everybody who can help me out there to, to kind of kick in and give a little bit of indie love towards us. Um, so that's pretty well the pitch. I mean, I've got, so many creative people who've been in the industry in it. Uh, it, It's just gonna be too bad if it fails. 
Well, you know, you mentioned this at the time of this recording, we're sort of in the, in the almost the last week. So, so time is of yes. the essence uh, for anybody yes. listening. They, 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 they should act sooner rather than, than later on, on this Kickstarter. Um, and we're going to put links to, to your webpage, uh, to the Kickstarter um, uh, in, the, in the show notes to make it as easy as possible for, for folks to, to check it out. Um, but uh, it, was, it was great uh, talking to you. I'd like to, to thank you once again uh, for, for being on. Oh, and, and thank you very much for doing what you do. This has been a whole new experience the last week doing these podcasts, but it's been, it's been really cool to kind of meet all these other people in industry and people who love enough love it enough to do this type of thing. Awesome. Well, thanks. Uh, so for anybody listening, if you could give us a rating and review on the podcasting service you use, we'd really appreciate it. If you want to follow the podcast, we're on Twitter at Construct compod and instagram is constructing comics pod and facebook is constructing comics i'd like to thank everybody for listening please be safe be nice to each other and go out there and make some comics thank you